think of today's message like a, a little bit of a lunch break. You've been driving down the interstate on a long journey, and, and uh, you need to take a break. And so you pull over into a, a, scenic, a scenic overlook and uh, take a, a little bit of time to look around and see the mountains or the countryside and, and have some food. That's what we're going to do today. Uh, we've been going on the story. We've been focusing on this main line of Scripture and how the story all fits together and how God's story, that upper story, interacts with the lower story of men's lives and how that impacts your story and mine. Uh, as we look at poetry today, we're going to take a little bit of a pause and, and look at how many of these men expressed their story in poetry. And so as we start this, um, please join me in prayer. Let's go to our God in prayer and give our attention to Him and ask Him to bless our time in His Word. Father, as we, as we uh, turn our attention today to a different form of, of um, parts of the Scripture, and as we look at a few verses from here and there, I just pray that You would work in our hearts. Uh, as we cover a variety of different topics this morning, I, I pray that, that uh, one or two or three of these things would in particular reach each one of us. There would be something about each one of these books that, would, um, that we would gravitate to, that would beckon us and, and call us where we're at right now. pray that you would use your word to teach us. I pray that you'd use this form of your word, the, poet, the poetic books, uh, to challenge us, not only this morning, but as we move forward and we learn to read your scripture better. So please teach us today, we, we ask. Amen. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to cover six books of poetry. Usually when we talk about the poetic books of the Bible, how many books do we talk about? We usually talk about five, and we group them in the poetic books of the Bible. Now, there's a lot more poetry throughout the Bible, isn't there? Can you think of other places other than the books of poetry where you see poetry? Isaiah would be a big one, right? Jeremiah, we look at the prophets. The prophets oftentimes have lots of poetry. Even in the New Testament, you'll see portions where, where you see song or, or early, uh, maybe early hymns that were sung by the church. But today what we're going to do, uh, we usually just look at five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Uh, but I'd like to include the book of Lamentations today because uh, of its poetic nature and because we're not going to be spending much time there in our series, The Story. Uh, but before we dive into the first, uh, consider with me just why poetry is, is used so much in the Bible. Much of the Old Testament is written in narrative form. Uh, what, do we, what do we mean by narrative form? It's the story portions, right? You, know, you read about Joseph, and, and it, it pulls you in, doesn't it? Uh, those of you who went to the judge's workshop, you know, story and narrative typically has a form where they introduce you to the, the people and the places and, and the, the tension escalates and you come to this climax in the story and, and it sucks you in and you feel it and, and you experience what they're going through. And then there's a bit of a resolution to the story and then it introduces you to the next section or, or brings it to a close. Story pulls you into the history of these people's lives and the truths that they discovered, the revelations that God divulged to them. Narrative allows you to experience ups and downs of their story. But, but poetry allows you to experience the beating of their heart. Poetry conveys truth in the form of song. It teaches us through the art of words and allows you to experience the emotion that was felt by those who walked this path before us. Your heart is intended to be lifted up in praise as you hear the songs of the Psalms. Your sorrow 
is intended to be full when you lament with the prophet as he sings his dirge. Your joy is intended to overflow as you listen to the song of two lovers. And your mind is intended to be stimulated as you ponder the wisdom of Proverbs. Poetry lets you feel the beating of these men's heart, not just to experience the story of their lives. So let's consider six books where we find much of the poetry of the Bible, and I'd like you to consider how to read them. And that's part of my goal today, is that not only we would just do a survey of these books, but that we would consider, you know, how do I read these books of the Bible? What are some of the things that I need to be careful that I don't do and that I, that I need to look for when I'm, when I'm there? So our first poetic book is the book of Job. It's not Job, okay? This isn't a book about employment and how to build a resume. Uh, Job... Um, Many of us are familiar with the narrative portions of this book, uh, but our fear of poetry and our, or our confusion of poetry, or both at times, um, leads, us, uh, leads our thoughts to wander off into the unknown once we get to chapter three, right? Anybody ever read through Job and you make it through the first two chapters? And you kind of get through chapters three through five, and by the time you get to chapter 10, though, I mean, you're gone, you know, and, and who, what was this guy's name, and who was this guy, and you're, yeah, what, you know, and and you're not sure how to read some of the things they're saying. In fact, you've got to be careful when you read the book of Job, right? Because not everything in the book of Job is coming from the mouth of God. It's, it's God's Word, but He's accurately expressing things that other people said, including something like, curse God and die. Are those words to live by? Well, he's quoting Satan, so you might not want to go that direction, right? And so in Job, you, you have to consider, you know, who's talking here? There's a lot of discussion about when Job was actually written on paper, uh, but most scholars agree about when the actual setting of the book took place. Uh, the man Job lived around the time of Abraham. Uh, he, he lived long years like Abraham did. Uh, he lived in places uh, that were known uh, in Abraham's day. Uh, and so in our, sto- in our timeline of the story, what we're going to do from the life of David is we're going to jump back a thousand years, back to the, the time of Abraham. And, and now you're in the time of the patriarchs. The story of Job takes place in the narrative portions. We see that, that God and Satan are having a conversation. God asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And he asks him about this righteous man. And the Lord asks him if, you've cons- if he's considered him. And Satan makes a claim, a bold claim. He says, look, if you take everything away from Job, he will curse you to your face. Take away his, his health, take away his family, take away everything he owns, and he will curse you. And so God tells Satan, okay, you do that, but you you don't take his life. And and it goes in stages. Many of you are familiar with the the details of that that we won't cover today. But uh, by the end of chapter 2, Job's lost everything. He's lost all of his wealth, all all the livestock that made him one of the wealthiest men of the area probably. He's lost his family, and he's lost his health. His friends don't even recognize him because he's so covered in, in sores by the time they see him. And so, all three of Job's friends come and they, they sit with him and they weep. And then the next 40 chapters are mostly poetry. Now, the book of Job, though, it's, it's about God's goodness. The book of Job is about God's justice. It's about his sovereignty in a world that's filled with sufferings. And, and, and the struggle that Job and all of his friends and his wife are, are, are going through is how do I deal with suffering in this world? It, it, what did I do to deserve the suffering that I experienced? 
And each of his friends are going to present their arguments to Job as to why he's not a righteous man. He must have done something. And they're going to take all these different tracks about what they think about human suffering. And the book of Job is going to address those things as you look at these false statements that his friends make as they're trying to encourage him and don't. Even his wife says to him, curse God and die. Ultimately, the book is challenging those assumptions that we often make, though, isn't it? Because when you go through suffering, do you sometimes ask yourself questions? Do you, do you go through the whys and what's God doing and what did I do and what did this person do? And our mind plays those games, doesn't it? And so what Job essentially does is it puts into words some of the thoughts that you're struggling with and some of the temptations that, that we go through uh, the temptation is to think wrongly about God and to think wrongly about human suffering. Rather than just give us an epistle declaring certain truths, what the book of Job does is it allows us to feel Job's pain and the anguish of receiving such horrible advice from his wife, horrible advice from his friends. And that part of what you need to keep in mind, um, and that's part of what you need to keep in mind as you read through the poetry of Job. Uh, chapter after chapter, you need to distinguish whether his friends are speaking truth or what they're speaking is kind of what I taught, say myself when I go through suffering that's not true. Are, are they speaking error or, or are we sometime, uh, error that sometimes we're too afraid to put into words? What the book of Job is going to help you walk through are many of the bad ways of thinking about suffering. And then it's going to guide you to experience how good your God is and in the end, we should be able to declare with Job as he does in chapter 1, verse 21, where Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. At the end of the book, God's going to speak to Job. And he's going to say, who are you to question me about these things? He's going to put Job in his place. He's going to give Job perspective about his suffering and perspective about life and perspective about how Job fits into the whole grand scheme of things, that he's pretty small in the whole thing, isn't he? You know what's really interesting about Job, and it's just a side note, you know that Job never learns what happened between God and that, in that conversation with Satan? By the end of the book, Job has never sat down and, and God says, okay, you learned your lesson, now let me tell you what really happened. Here's the rest of the story. Job never gets that. For all that we know, Job never knew why he went through all the things that he did. He learned the lessons that he needed to learn, but as part of the narrative, we're given a perspective that Job never has. But it's the same with our lives, isn't it? Sometimes you never know on this side of heaven. And that's why we glorify God and trust him and his sovereignty. Let's jump over to one of the most familiar books of poetry, the book of Psalms. What's the longest book of the Bible? Trick question. It's not. It's on more pages, but Jeremiah is actually the longest book of the Bible if you, if you count the words. Uh, Psalms is the longest book if, if you uh, look at the pieces of paper. Sorry, I set you up. Uh, sorry, Russ. Um, book of Psalms. Uh, this is Israel's songbook. Uh, these are, are songs of worship and response to our Creator, uh, response to our Redeemer and our King. Uh, David wrote many of the Psalms, but, but Psalm 90 is written by Moses. 
Psalm 72 and 127 were written by Solomon. Many of the Psalms were written by the temple musicians, and 48 of the Psalms are anonymous. We don't, we don't know who wrote them. Overall, the Psalms were written by various authors over a period of about a thousand years, and, and by the time that they were collected into one book, we have 150 Psalms, 150 songs and hymns that were divided into five books. Uh, Ronald Allen gives a great summary of this book. He says, as one of the greatest collections of songs, prayers, and poetry, the book of Psalms expresses the deepest passions of humanity. In these pages, we can hear the psalmist's desperate cry in the midst of despair as well as his ecstatic praise of his provider and comforter. We can hear him pouring out his soul in confession, but also bubbling over with joy. The Psalms lead us through the valleys and peaks of human experience, but in the end, they guide us to the praise of our loving Creator. Hebrew poetry, in Psalms as well as we're going to see in, in the other books of poetry, uh, it differs a little bit from the poetry that we experience in, uh, in English. Uh, maybe when you're in high school or college or maybe as a hobby you like reading po- books of poetry. How many of you enjoy English poetry? Shakespeare, Robert Frost? Okay, we've got a, got a few. I see maybe 10, 15 hands up. So we have a few poetry fans. How many of those of you that just raised your hands, you read through the books of poetry in the Bible and you go, there's something different about this? It doesn't rhyme. Yeah, it's just not quite, you know, it's, it's not the stuff that I learned in, in high school. This isn't Shakespeare. There's something very different about this kind of poetry. And, and one of the things that you're going to notice about English poetry versus Hebrew poetry that makes them so different English poetry relies on rhyme and meter. Is, is, that, is that an accurate statement? It relies very heavily on, on words sounding similar. Um, but Hebrew poetry is different. Hebrew poetry is, is perfect for translating into any language because it's not relying on rhyme. It's not relying mostly on, on the meter of a passage. It's different in that uh, in that way, and so you can translate it into about any language in a way that you can't translate Shakespeare or Robert Frost. English poetry relies on rhyme and meter, but Hebrew poetry is built on what we call parallelism. English rhyme is built around manipulating and repeating sound. Hebrew poetry is built, about, uh, built on repeating and rearranging thoughts. You can translate thoughts, right? And, and so uh, Hebrew poetry focuses on that. Let's look at some examples uh, and get into the scripture uh, from Psalms. Uh, first of all, as we talk about parallelism, there are different kinds of parallelism. That's a big word. Let's just all say it together so we can get the, that huge word out of the way. Parallelism. Okay? Ooh, that's harder to say than it sounds, isn't it? Yeah, say it five times fast now. That's poetry. Um, parallelism, there's different kinds of parallelism that we can't fully unpack today, but two of the most common forms that you're going to find in Psalms and Proverbs in particular, but other places where you find poetry in the Bible, um, when, when you look at Hebrew poetry, uh, the first and probably the most prevalent type that you're going to see is what's called synonymous parallelism. parallelism. And, and really all that means, a synonymous parallel is when the poet expresses a thought in the first line and then he gives you a second line, and he repeats the same, the same thought, but with different words. Let's look at an example. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. In Psalm 2, 11, we read, serve the Lord with fear. There's a thought, right? And rejoice 
with trembling. Same thought expressed twice, but the second time you look at that thought, there's different words. The first line made a statement, but the second line, it intends to make you slow down. Because I, I can think about service and fear together, but rejoicing? And, and so you have to stop and you have to think, how, how is serving with fear now accompanied with this idea of, of rejoicing even while I'm trembling? How does that fit together? And so parallelism makes you pause and think about what's being said. You can't just read through it quickly. How does fear belong with rejoicing? Uh, contrasted with synonymous parallelism is what we call antithetical parallelism. An antithetical parallel is when the poet expresses a thought in the first line, just like synonymous parallels, but then a, there's a contrasting thought that's presented in the second. And so usually you're going to have a key word, um, the word but, to show you that there's something different happening here. Look at Psalm chapter 1, verse 6, early on in the book. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Is that a true statement? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, profound, makes you think about it. But then he's going to give you a contrasting statement to make you think about what that first one actually means. But the way of the wicked will perish. Two parallel ideas arranged in a way that make you consider two opposite ways that you personally can follow in life. Hebrew poetry is also going to be strongly, it's going to strongly emphasize figures of speech. We all love figures of speech, right? Uh, when I was in college, uh, Ronald, Dr. Ronald Sauer was my Greek professor. In part of our Greek class, he made us memorize 250 different kinds of figures of speech and an example with each one. We had a quiz on them all, 15 at a time. We hated it. But you read through the Psalms and you're going to find these parallels and, and you're going to find these figures of speech all over the place. Let's look at an example of one of those. Uh, consider Psalm 91 verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. So is Psalms teaching us that God is a chicken? Or has feathers like a chicken? That's not the point, right? Not at all. You see, the figure of speech should cause you to slow down and say, wait a minute, how, how is God like one that has pinions and, and, and under his wings I can find refuge? How is God like that? The figure of speech makes you slow down and consider the picture of what your God is like. It would be much easier to just speak in plain language than us would say, Right? Let's go to 1 Peter or Romans. Tell me the same thing in a very clear epistle-like statement, right? We like our theology and we like it in clear statements. We could do that and just say, God will protect you. Is that true? Say yes, please. <laughs> yeah, God will protect you. But if you've ever watched a mother bird with her chicks... When you give pause to what the poet is teaching you, you will not only know a truth about what your God does, he will protect you, but now your soul will also experience the truth of who he is. Poetry is intended to engage your heart, not just your head. And we certainly find that to be true in the book of Psalms. One other consideration as we look at the Psalms, uh, keep in mind that there's different kinds of Psalms. Um, a lot of the psalms sound very different from one another, don't they? You, you turn to one psalm and you went, wow, that was really encouraging. And then you turn to another song and you go, I'm going to cry. This is really, oh, what's happening here? 
uh, you have different kinds of psalms, and they were written for different purposes, kind of like our hymns that we sing in our songs. Uh, you had songs of ascent. Does anybody know when you would sing a song of ascent? When would that be? On your way up to the temple. You know, I'm, I'm walking from Nazareth to Jerusalem, I'm crossing the Jordan, or I'm going through Samaria, and so along the way, you would sing songs. Which songs would you sing? It would be the songs of ascent, the songs of praise as I'm walking towards Jerusalem, or especially as I'm walking up the mountain to the temple. There's a great time to sing some of those songs, and those psalms were written specifically for that purpose. You'll find um, psalms that were uh, psalms of lament, where the musician is, is crying out to God from his trouble. You'll find psalms of confession and repentance, uh, in which there's sorrow that's expressed over sin. Uh, psalm 51, am I right? 53, is David's psalm after his sin with Bathsheba. It's a psalm of repentance, confession, pleading to God. There are psalms giving praise to God for nature, psalms praising God for His work in history. There are, of course, messianic psalms that are pointing to Jesus. We looked at a few of those when we studied Hebrews, didn't we? Psalm 110 is, is huge. Probably one of the most quoted psalms throughout the New Testament. You'll even find a couple psalms where the writer's calling for God's judgment on wicked men. And he reads through some of the words they speak and you go, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, he's calling judgment down on these people. Am I supposed to act that same way towards my enemies? But oftentimes what we find in the Psalms is, kind of like with Job, is a person trying to work through the emotions of life. What do I do when I'm sorrowful? What do I do when I'm filled with this emotion that feels a lot like hatred? And, and how do I address that? How does God want me to address that? How do I work through praise? How do I work through death and, and suffering and sin and confession? And Psalms gives us a voice to express those things in a way that is consistent with the theology of all of Scripture. And you see the emotions and the struggles that people have. And, and you, learn to, you learn to express yourself in a similar way. In a way that honors the Lord and causes our hearts to sing. Psalm chapter 19, verse 14 captures one of the most dominant themes of Psalms and gives us a good summary of the book. He says, Let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's jump to another book. I know we're flying through these today. A little bit different from our normal, normal pattern. But again, our purpose here is I want you to be thinking through how do I read Psalms? How do I read Job? How do I read Proverbs? How do I deal with a book like this in my normal reading of Scripture? The book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings. Uh, much of the Proverbs were written by David's son Solomon, but the book, some of the book includes Proverbs that were probably collected later in Israel's history. Proverbs were common in the ancient world. We looked at, at some earlier uh, from Egypt. Uh, we have some from America, a lot written by a guy named Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Proverbs are very common uh, genre from all over the world. Jesus had several Proverbs that he shared. Um, but Proverbs, particularly Hebrew Proverbs that we find in the Bible, they're intended, again, to make you slow down. Don't just read over them like you would read tricks and secrets for success in, in Reader's Digest. This isn't just bathroom reading. They're not to be browsed like you would some silly internet memes. This book is more than just wise sayings. 
Proverbs and Hebrew poetry teach us how to live life. Principles for life that you can expect to be true under normal conditions. These are principles to be lived out by people of all time and from every corner of the world. They're not always absolute statements, but, but general principles about truth and about how life works. And, and if you walk this way, this is generally what's going to be expected in life. And there's also parallelism we talked about with the Psalms. It's going to be even more obvious when you look at Proverbs. You're going to read antithetical parallelism and synonymous parallelism and all kinds of other parallelisms. But, but what you want to look for is those statements where you have one line and the second line doing something else that helps you understand that first line or further explains the first line or maybe gives the climax and the punch to the first line. And these are the principles to be lived out by people of all time from every corner of the world. Uh, so, for example, uh, let's look at one. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. Let's look at the parallelism there. It also gives us a good summary of what the book of wis- this book of wisdom is about. Uh, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Two statements about God providing wisdom to us, but um, expressed in two different ways. Synonymous parallelism. My friends, po- Proverbs is poetry and wisdom for living daily life. Ecclesiastes, probably one of the most misinterpreted books of the Bible. Uh, how many of you enjoy the book of Ecclesiastes? Read all the time, just you know, you're looking forward to you know, just bring yourself up, make life a little bit more optimistic. So let's turn to Ecclesiastes, right? Uh, sometimes we need a healthy dose of reality. And Ecclesiastes will provide that for you if your perspective on life is out of whack. Ecclesiastes demonstrates the futility of life apart from God. That's the key. The futility of life apart from God. There's a key phrase that's repeated over and over and over again, and you need to pay attention to it because if you don't understand this phrase, you're going to misinterpret the book of Ecclesiastes. The phrase is, under the sun. What does that mean, under the sun? It's poetry. He's on this side of life, the lower story. If the lower story is all that there is, and God is not involved in the upper story with an overall sovereign plan, then all of this down here under the sun, what is it? Meaningless. Futility. Dust in the wind. And so, under the sun. If you ignore that phrase, Ecclesiastes is really going to depress you. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Um, Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there is nothing to be gained. Wow, that's exciting. Oh, don't miss the last part, under the sun. And you see that last phrase that's repeated throughout Ecclesiastes is going to define what that vanity is and what that vanity looks like, because you see that in people's lives, don't you? You lived much of your life that way, pursuing things that you thought were going to bring you fulfillment, that thought you thought were going to bring you joy, but just left you empty. It was futility, meaningless. And that's what life is under the sun. So the difference between Pink Floyd and Ecclesiastes is the phrase, under the sun. Pink Floyd and his friends Bill and Ted are going to tell you that all we are is dust in the wind. And Ecclesiastes taught us that over 3,000 years before Bill and Ted ever said it, or Pink Floyd. But it adds the phrase that they missed. What is it? Under the sun. 
You see, if there is no God above, then all of our striving under the sun is vanity. It's meaningless. And so in beautiful poetry, Solomon uh, shows us that if, if seeking wisdom and, and pleasure is your main purpose in life, it's meaningless. If, if your work is your chief end, if your whole life is about the job that you do, it's all futility. If your life is lived under the sun apart from faith and apart from God, then all of your striving is like chasing the wind. The key to Ecclesiastes is to note his conclusion. Sometimes, and I, I hate this normally, okay? I, I, I tell my wife, why do you do this? I, I know I owe you ice cream because I didn't ask you this. That's our rule in the family. If I mention something and there's an illustration and I call you out, then, yeah, I didn't ask for her permission beforehand, so ice cream it is. Um, Angie reads books. She reads in first. She turns to the last page and decides, is this a book that I want to read because does it end the way that I want it to happen? It drives me crazy. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But Ecclesiastes is a book where you probably want to read the end of the book so that you understand how to read the rest of the book. Angie's got it right on this one. Look at what the end of the book says. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. In the next verse, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so Ecclesiastes teaches us, trust in God, enjoy life because God has made everything beautiful in its time, but remember that God has put eternity into man's heart. We've been created to serve and worship him. Another book that's often ignored or often misinterpreted is the Song of Songs, often called the Song of Solomon. Uh, quite simply put, this is a book of Hebrew love poetry. It, it's not going to use lettuce in your hair stuff, but it's going to be very heavy on metaphors. Uh, many people are, are actually shocked by some of the imagery in the Song of Songs uh, and by the sexual nature of this, these songs. Um, you, you see, the Bible is a book about God's relationship with mankind, Right? Have we been discovering that as we've been talking about the story? The Bible is a book about God's relationship with mankind, and he created us to worship him. And we ruined it, didn't we? We broke it. And in Scripture, we find God's story as he is working in the midst of man's story, and he's restoring what we broke. And because God is the one who created us, and because God knows how he created us, it shouldn't surprise us that God has devoted an entire book to the relationship between a man and a woman. Song of Songs is about Solomon, who meets a, a young Shulamite girl while he's out visiting the countryside. She's tanned by the sun. Uh, she's been working out in the sun. This isn't a wealthy woman, but they, they meet and they fall in love. The book takes us through their courtship, the wedding day, the wedding night, a few dream sequences, the complications of married life, uh, eventually a, a, a vacation in the countryside. And Song of Songs is filled with, with um, metaphors. It's filled with imagery that shows us God's view about love, his view about marriage, his view about the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. 
It's love poetry at its finest. Before we move on, though, I'd just like to make an observation. You know, 150 years ago, particularly in our culture, society talked a lot about death. I mean, death was just everywhere. People died of smallpox and plague and, and, and lifespan was not as long as it was, and so death was something you had to deal with all the time. But no one talked about love and, and sex. It, it was somewhat taboo uh, oftentimes. But today that's been reversed, hasn't it? We don't like talking about death. We're afraid of death. Just look at what happened in 2020, and you'll notice that people were terrified of death. They didn't know what to do with it. And our culture is drunk on sex. A study from 17 years ago found out that out of 959 programs that were intended for general audiences on TV, 70% of those shows contained some kind of sexual comment, talking about sex or sex acts. 70 percent of 959 shows intended for general audience. This isn't HBO or, or Showtime. Across those 675 programs that did contain content, there was an average of five scenes per hour involving sex. And this was a study from 2005. Enter Netflix and all the other shows that are out there. And you can imagine where we're at today. We should be clear that the Bible speaks very frankly about this beautiful relationship. It, it doesn't hold back. It, it doesn't go, it sucks. The, the Bible is clear about it. It talks about it. But we should note that in Scripture, God always knows when to pull the curtain. Doesn't he? He pulls the curtain at the appropriate time. He talks about things, but he doesn't invite us like TV does into the scene. Even in Song of Songs, where some of the metaphors really push, they push a PG-13 rating, God uses the language of poetry and figures of speech, and he uses them as a veil for innocent ears and innocent readers, but he uses that same poetic expression to stir up our hearts for those who have known their spouses for a lifetime. Briefly, I'd like to jump forward 500 years to the time of Jeremiah the prophet. So we've come back from Abraham a thousand years ago before David. Back to David. Now let's jump forward 500 years to the end of Israel and Judah before they're carried off into Babylon. This is the sixth book of poetry in the Bible that we're going to look at today. Uh, we usually don't categorize Lamentations with the other books of poetry because it's usually tied to Jeremiah and we categorize it with the prophets. But be, and be sure, most of the prophets have lots of poetic form in them. But Lamentations is a unique piece of poetry in which the prophet is working through his grief. He, he's just, just watched the city of Jerusalem burned to the ground. The temple is up in flames. And he's watching his people carried off in chains, probably chained one to the other with a, a ring through their noses as they walk across the, the fertile crescent. And the smoke comes from the city for days, maybe weeks. And, and Jeremiah works through that grief, and Lamentations is the result. Like Job, Lamentations teaches us about suffering. It teaches us about God's judgment and the consequences of sin. And it teaches us about God's mercy and His grace. 
that God still reigns on his throne. And we still have hope even in the midst of adversity. A couple of things for you to note about lamentations. First, you know, when we lose somebody, uh, we grieve, don't we? And sometimes that process of grief it takes a long time to work through. It comes in its phases and cycles. Sometimes we need a process. Sometimes we need an activity to help us work through that grief in its various stages. And it's interesting that I think that the book of Lamentations does that. In some ways, Lamentations is a, is a display for us of the prophet Jeremiah working through his grief. And I think that part of the process that he may have used was the writing of this book to work through his grief over the burning of Jerusalem and the destruction of his people, the death of many of his loved ones. This book of poetry is, is some of the most beautiful but most sorrowful poetry that we know of. The Hebrew name for the book is Echa. Can you hear it? Echa. It means, oh, oh. And that leads us to the structure of the book. When you're reading Lamentations, it's helpful to realize that Jeremiah has carefully crafted this entire dirge in an acrostic form. Um, an acrostic is when you uh, maybe spell a name and then you, each letter stands for something. Or you take the whole alphabet and A stands for apple, B stands for boy, C, right? And so the entire book of, 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 of uh, Lamentations is an acrostic. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 start with, uh, they have 22 verses, both chapters. In both of those 22 verses, of each of those chapters, each line, each three lines of each verse starts with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet. And so it goes through, Aleph, Beit, Himmel, Dalet. In chapter 3, he does the same thing, but now there's 66 verses, and each letter is given three, uh, uh, is given three verses in order. And chapter 4 returns to the form of the first two chapters, but rather than three lines in each verse, we're going to have two lines. And then chapter 5, as if you can hear the prophet quietly weeping, he drops the pattern. Drops it all together. He still has 22 lines, but there's no acrostic form. Listen to the declaration that Jeremiah makes in the center portion, though. Because it's this middle chapter that really takes you to the heart of his message. Chapter 3, verse 22. We read, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Poetry in the Bible not only teaches us remarkable theology that we can feel, but it shows us how to process our feelings, how to process our emotions when we're guided by the right theology. Hebrew poetry is a bit different from what we're used to, isn't it? It's unlike English poetry, and it's unlike the epistles of the New Testament. It's unlike the narrative stories of the Old Testament and the Gospels and Acts. But the books of poetry teach us to experience truth. They engage the head, 
but they sing to the heart. They teach us to suffer. And they teach us, and they give us a song to sing. They show us the way of wisdom as well as the way of lovers. Poetry calls us to live with purpose and shows us how to cry in our loss. Perhaps one of these books is what you need today. Perhaps one of the books we looked at is exactly where you're at. Perhaps you're walking this path and one of these is the friend that you need to show you how to walk it. The poetry of the Bible, you know, it's often unfamiliar to us, isn't it? But I want to encourage you to embrace the unfamiliar and as the praise team comes forward for our closing song, let's look at Psalm chapter 33. In Psalm 33, the psalmist tells us, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Thank you.